Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I uh, literally had no idea how many non-practicing zoologists lived in the world until about two weeks ago. You see, about two weeks ago, a young boy was at the Cincinnati Zoo, and he fell into an enclave, a little area where the gorillas were on display. And the gorilla got close to the boy, touched the boy, even dragged the boy. And apparently at that moment, thousands upon thousands of people who must have been zoologists in some previous life but are now practicing medicine or accounting or stay-at-home moms, and they're in Chicago, Seattle, Dallas, and Detroit, they all came out of the woodwork to explain how the zoo made the wrong decision in shooting that gorilla to save this boy. I just had no idea, perhaps you did, how many zoologists and gorilla mavens lived in the world. At the very same time, as I was reading about this article and this happening, I was wildly amazed with how many perfect parents live in the world too. Because there were just as many articles and comments and talkbacks from parents all over the globe who clearly had never lost sight of their children, not even for a split second, and whose children have never, ever misbehaved. They've never run off and never gotten into mischief because so many of these parents were positive that such a thing could never happen under their watch, of course. And some of the parents even called for the mother to have been shot instead of the gorilla because she was in the wrong. And it just made me realize how inept I am as a rabbi, because I know some things about Judaism, but I know nothing about gorillas, and I'm just a mediocre parent at best. And it made me feel lacking in a very significant way. What's so surprising to me about the disproportionate amount of perfect parents is that somehow or another, most statistics tell us that kids today, from the age of 15 all the way up to 40, especially in particular areas, see more therapists than ever before in history. So I start to question how perfect some of these parents might indeed be. What I've noticed is that we live in a world that is loaded with mavens, and we have very few novices in our midst. People who claim to know a lot about everything and are defiant and what it is that they know. They know that there's schooling and there's training and that's nice, but it's really not necessary to know everything there is to know about a gorilla or about parenting, even if they don't have a child. These people, these mavens, and there aren't a few of them, they're definitive in their opinion, they're passionate in their beliefs, and there's no room for another opinion or for someone else to wiggle around. The etymology of the word maven, the root of the word maven, comes from Hebrew. The Hebrew word for understanding is mavin, to understand. And a person who knew a lot about a particular topic was called a maven because he understood most about it. And it was set aside for people in particular categories. Like the cantor is a maven in Jewish music because he knows more about it than most of us in this room. But somehow or another, this title has just morphed into so many different disciplines in our midst. And what has fed it, in particular, I think it's worked as a fertilizer of sorts, has been social media. 
because this has given these mavens a platform to really broaden their reach and their scope on so many different topics. Let me give you a few other examples. Have you ever noticed how many mavens there are, especially in the Jewish world when it comes to nuclear science? Last year when the Iran deal was being discussed, and particularly over the summer, a whole gaggle of Jews who couldn't unclog a toilet in their house and couldn't hang a shelf in the garage somehow or another knew the exact chemical timing of what made fissile material and how to enrich uranium. They knew exactly every single detail that was necessary. It didn't matter that they were an accountant. They knew it and they were defiant as to what materials Iran had, how long it would take, and when that would all be enriched and turned into such material. These were indeed mavens. And then there's a whole other group of mavens that know everything about the Middle East. They never studied political science. Some have never even been to Israel, but they can tell you about every group, whether it's Al-Qaeda, ISIL, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the like. And I feel so silly sometimes because if I would just put my arm around some of these people and say to them, come with me to Israel, tell them your opinions, they'll elect you prime minister and everything will be solved. <laughs> there is nothing more to worry about because clearly you have the recipe that can fix everything. You know emphatically what it is that is the dynamic called the Middle East and you know exactly how to play it. And you, if they would just bother to listen to you, there would be peace. How do we get you such a platform, oh my maven friend? My other maven friends, these are what I call the TU friends. They are the title telepathically understanding. Now by that I mean these mavens, they have an ability to just laser in on what another person is thinking and they can tell you their thought process, their rationale, their opinion and their belief most time without ever meeting the person. Because these people with telepathic understanding, they do their best work with politicians and celebrities. They know exactly what a celebrity is thinking. They can tell you exactly the motives behind any particular politician, why it is that they say, what it is that they're thinking, and they are just as defiant and emphatic in every single one of these beliefs. We live in a world full of mavens and it's driving me crazy because I wish there was some space in the world for people who were novices, people who just knew a little less and were proud to admit it. Now in all fairness, in the Jewish tradition in particular, we help breed this by trying to give answers to all types of questions that we couldn't even answer. One of my favorite theological texts in the entire Talmud comes from the notion of Iserin Shalahava. Someone comes up to the rabbi and they say, Rabbi, I am afflicted with a terrible disease and I'm dying. Why is this happening to me? And we're supposed to tell that person in such a situation, it's because you didn't study enough Torah in your life. This is the reason why you're dying. And then they ask the question, well, what if the person comes back and they say, Rabbi, I actually studied every single day of my life I worked incredibly hard at making time for putting on tefillin and davening and being philanthropic and doing all the things I could do. Why then am I in pain? Why then am I afflicted with this disease? And the rabbis are supposed to look at a person in such a situation and say, ah, well, that's because God loves you. <laughs>
And their understanding in saying this was very simple. The rabbis had no clue why good people suffered. They just had no clue whatsoever. But they didn't want to leave you without an answer. They felt that the void, the vacuum that was there in such a good theological question of how something terrible could happen to a righteous human being couldn't be left unanswered. Because if it were left unanswered, then we might look for faith elsewhere. So therefore, we're going to give an answer. And the answers, mind you, are radically different. One says over here, it's because you weren't a good enough Jew. And if you turn back and say, I was a good enough Jew, then we turn it 180 degrees and say, it's because you were such a good Jew that God punishes you. And their own way of saying, we don't have an answer. But the rabbis have to come across like mavens and answer the unanswerable. You know, it's interesting to me, as a rabbi, I deal with questions all day long. But I will tell you that there's a disproportionate amount of questions that I get that I put into the category of Yisrin Shalahava. They are unanswerable questions. I can count on one hand in the last 10 years I've been the rabbi here, how many times someone has come to me and said, Rabbi, my meatball fell into the dairy pot and I don't know what to do with the meatball or the pot. These are questions I don't get. And when I get them, they're very easy. They're what I call linear questions with linear answers, like three plus two equals five. Here's what you do. There's a way to fix that problem. And that is a question that's answerable. But what do you do when someone comes into my office, like I get almost once a week, and says, Rabbi, my granddaughter is marrying someone who's not Jewish in a Catholic ceremony. If I go, it's going to rip out my heart. But if I don't go, I'll be ripped out from their family. What do I do, Rabbi? Or how about the person who comes up to me and says, I want to vote. I'm passionate about voting. I want to vote for what I think is best for America. And I want to vote for what I think is best for Israel. And Rabbi, I need your help on this one. You know more than I do about Israel. Who's better? Doesn't matter what election, by the way. Who's better? Do you have an answer for that question? I don't have an answer for that question. Or how about the person who comes up to me and says, my mom is on life support. She's been this way for two weeks. The doctors are feeling hopeless and she doesn't want to live in a vegetative state, but I can't turn the machine off. What do I do, Rabbi? In those cases, I'm not a maven. I'm a novice. It doesn't matter how many times those questions come before me. I don't have a recipe, a concoction, a three plus do, or here's what you do when the meatball falls in the pot. I have no idea what to tell these people. They're all individualized. And these are the real conundrums of life. They're not the linear questions that everyone claims to be a maven on, of how to fix the Middle East, or who it is that we should vote for and why, because they didn't articulate something that we understandably know that no one else has heard or seen or that we know exactly how a gorilla is gonna behave and that we are infallible parents that never make mistakes. You know, it's true, as a rabbi, I know more than some and less than others on some topics. But my accountant friend knows more about accounting than I and my physician neighbor knows more about medicine than I do and my attorney who I work out with friend he knows more about the law than I do. And that's why I turn to them when I need my taxes filed or I need representation or my back is hurting when I turn a particular way because that is an area 
of which they know about, of which they are bona fide, licensed, researched, educated mavens. And that's why we have the disciplines in life in which we do. But sadly, there are so many people that just want their unanswerable questions answered. Anyone here know the number one question I'm asked as a rabbi? The number one question. The number one question I usually get on the high holidays is, when is Yisker? That's the number one question. <laughs> or when is this service going to be over, right? The second question I get, which falls in the same category, is what happens to us when we die? I get it every single place I go. Sit on an airplane, on a, wherever I am, you're a rabbi, what happens to us when we die? Now, why is it that this, this is the most popular question I get? And it's not unique to me. I'm sure if you ask Rabbi Spielman, it's in his top five for sure. It's because it's an unanswerable question. We don't have a whole list of people who have died and come back and shared with us what their experiences have been. And because of it, we're so uneasy with how it is that we're supposed to know what the next world looks like, that we pause and we go to someone else who we think is a maven who can give us an answer. I remember being in a particular congregant's hospital room, surrounded by his family, and the end was imminent. It was literally a matter of minutes. It's a very painful time for family, and even very hard for me as a pastor. And one of the family members turned to me, and they said, Rabbi, tell me what's happening to his soul. And I said, I'm gonna call her Michelle. I said, Michelle, I don't know what's happening to his soul. But I do believe in my heart that him hearing all of your voices and being surrounded by all of you is a source of comfort. And you should keep talking and holding his hand. And she said to me, but Rabbi, I need to know what's happening to his soul. And I said, I, I don't know, Michelle. I think that it's going to ascend and be reunited. With, I, I don't know. And she kept pushing and pushing until she grabbed me by my lapels and obviously she was under a lot of trauma and stress it's an emotional time her father was about to die and she says I need to know and it wasn't until I can say something definitively that was absolutely not definitive that I gave her a sense of solace because we have become wired in a way to have to know absolutely what things are as opposed to just being able to say once in a while we don't know now part of this also comes from the notion of King Solomon you see, King Solomon was faced with his role as a judge when a baby came before him and two mothers were arguing over who the baby belonged to. And Solomon did not have an answer. For all of you who think that Solomon was so wise and figured it all out, he was desperate. He wanted to divine what God's will was and something that was not divinable. So he came up with this idea of cutting the baby and that would warrant out who the real mother was. And it worked. But if you read the text and you read the commentary, what you're going to see about Solomon is that he feels an incredible sense of relief in doing this. He had no idea that this was going to give him the solution he wanted. And sometimes we go back looking for that Solomonic answer when it doesn't exist. We go look and figure out, did we have to shoot the gorilla or could we have left him alone and he would have released the boy? And as if we had this magic elixir, this concoction that would tell us the answer, and then we all have the license at that point to second guess all of the authorities, regardless of which side of the ledger we might be on. That's a problem. And just as Solomon might have come up with a perfect solution in a unique situation, the Talmud is loaded with examples of one simple word 
that tells us they don't know. And the word is teku. Teku is a word in the Talmud that found repeatedly that lets us know that sometimes there is no answer. Sometimes we can just say, I don't know. Sometimes we are licensed to be novices instead of being mavens. And that is as valuable as pretending that we know about every scenario. I want to close with uh, an important story that I think is emblematic of uh, the point I'm trying to make. It was shared in the book on Jewish literacy by Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. The story goes as follows. A young boy comes to a rabbi and says, I want to be a Talmudic scholar. I want to be the person that when everyone comes up to me, I have all the answers for them about how to fix certain scenarios in life. I want to be that guy, that rabbi. Teach me how to do it, rabbi. Train me as your apprentice to be the rabbi who can answer everything. So the rabbi strokes his beard for a minute and he says, okay, let's start with this question. Two men come down a chimney. And when they come down a chimney, one has a dirty face and one has a clean face. Which one of the two washes his face? And the guy says, oh, the guy with the dirty face. And the rabbi says, wrong. The man with the clean face washes his face. You see, the man with the dirty face looks at the man with the clean face and he says, his face is clean, my face must be clean too. But the man with the clean face looks at the man with the dirty face and he says, ah, his face is dirty, mine must be dirty. So he goes and he washes his face. So oh, I think I get it. I think I get what it is to be a rabbi. He goes, I got one more for you. He goes, what is it? He says, two men come down a chimney. One has a dirty face and one has a clean face. Which one washes his face? He goes, we just figured this out. Obviously, the one with the clean face. He goes, no. You see, once the one with the clean face starts washing his face, then the dirty face is going to start washing his too, thinking that he's trying to give him a hint. So obviously, they're both going to wash their face. The man strokes his beard again. He says, oh, I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting it. The rabbi says, one more question. He says, what? He says, two men come down a chimney. One has a clean face and one has a dirty face. Which one washes their face? The man scratches his head for a moment and he says, well, we know the clean face one is going to wash because of the dirty face. We know the dirty face is going to wash because he's washing the clean face. And he goes back and forth. He says, uh, I'm not sure. And the rabbi slaps his hand down. And he goes, how in the world is it possible that two men can come down a chimney and they both don't have a dirty face? <laughs> and then the rabbi said to him, when you try to answer silly questions, you're just going to come up with silly answers. It's a reminder to all of us that being a rabbinic scholar or being an accountant or a physician or someone who works on Wall Street or an attorney or whatever it is that we do with our lives, whatever it is, does not license us to be mavens in any particular discipline or field. And that when we try and divine that which is not divinable, like a situation of this boy falling into this pit in this horrible scenario that could happen to any one of us, any one of us, because none of us are perfect parents. Or we see the terror that happens in Israel and someone claims how they would fix the scenario so Hamas would never attack again. 
or when someone tells us exactly what it is that Hillary or Donald Trump are thinking and why they're thinking in a particular way though we've never heard it articulated. They're just being mavens. And a maven doesn't provide any space for the other. And core to who we are as Jews is to provide that space. It's to say, I don't know. It's to limit ourselves to the expertise we have and make room for the others who indeed have those expertise. Because when we don't do that, we're not only acting immorally and irresponsibly and quite obnoxious, but I would argue we're acting un-Jewish. Let us all be able to say, Teku, there is no answer. I don't know. Because in that answer, we are at the core of what Judaism asks for us. Shabbat Shalom.